Computers, why bother? Reminiscences of our times. Why would anyone want their own computer? For that matter, who would ever want to even use one? I asked myself these questions 25 years ago, and my answers were, no idea, and not for me, thanks very much. At that time, I hated sums and anything mathematical deeply, and this was due to my dreadful educational experience, not at all done to me being stupid, and so I avoided the embarrassment of maths at all costs. When presented with the emerging personal computer, my reasoning went that as all computers are a very fast way of doing maths, I should avoid them like the plague. Number crunching, be it in a bank or an office, seemed to be an utterly pointless and thankless existence. In those days, increasingly distant though they are, avoiding computers was the simple task of not going near one. I then worked in the utterly unmathematical world of broadcast television, and it looked as if computers would never cross my path. It was in 1978 that I joined the BBC, and like every prospective technical trainee, I spent a lot of my time attempting to survive the rigours of the gruelling BBC residential training camp. Set in the otherwise beautiful Vale of Evesham, this was where once sane people were tortured and tested to destruction as an introduction to the system they would eventually be expected to support and run. Course failure resulted in termination in BBC internal parlance. They called the place Wood Norton. This was also the place where not-quite-de-skilled engineers lived on for a few years in a sort of half-life as lecturers. That should have been a warning to me. My deep dislike of the place may well be genetic, as my father had already passed through several compulsory multi-week ordeals and could have passed on his loathing to me at birth. Neither of us work for the BBC any more, so I am free to tell this tale. The place was once intended to be a regional seat of government in the time of war, and as such had all the trappings of wartime austerity writ large in its every aspect. I have nightmares of it to this day. So bad were the Nissan Hut accommodation blocks that before Auntie could use them as a setting for a prison camp in a John le Carre spy series, she had to tart them up. The filming was done over a weekend when the internees were let free to wreak havoc in the country. After the filming, the crew removed the benches and curtains that they had added in order to make the place look bad. The views were Wood Norton's saving grace. They were always wonderful. They kept me sane. It was on a crisp, clear day, much like one of those which may have dawned over aerodromes during the Battle of Britain, that I spoke to the man who changed my life. It was his job to talk. He was a lecturer. He told me, I don't remember why, that he had once made a mistake and was still paying for it. He related sadly that in his distant past he had dutifully learned all there was to know about the valve-driven high technology of his day. In the pursuit of good job prospects he had reached the point where his knowledge could not be bettered. Sadly for him, the world changed. The invention of the transistor had at first looked no threat to the ubiquitous valve. Valves were used everywhere in everything much as the chip is today. He had thought that there would always be good jobs for someone who could use valves to good effect, so he sat in his laurels, perhaps polishing them a bit from time to time, while the transistor revolution took off. By the time he'd noticed that the writing had been on the wall for so long that new writing had been put on top of it, transistors had themselves grown up and morphed yet further. The integrated circuit had been born. 
His outdated knowledge was still encyclopedic when he met me, but long before then my teacher had realised there was no option but to dump his much-loved valve and start learning again. Unfortunately, he had left it too late to catch up. No matter how well his undimmed brain dealt with the new technology, he knew he would always be at least two steps behind everyone else. The only job he could get was as a teacher. The moral of this story soon became clear. He knew of my dislike of mindless number-crunching maths machines and told me his story to try and stop me going the same way he did. Keep up with the new or get buried with the old, he said. A very gloomy thought, but one on which I acted, eventually. Way back in 1985 or so, when compact discs rotated at 45 RPM and a floppy one was five and a quarter inches wide, I was already onto my second computer. The first had been, and to some extent still is, a home-built but not home-brew CompuKit UK 101. If you've never heard of it, go to the Science Museum. It was a bag of bits, which, when assembled, turned into a fully working, basic-based wonder machine, with four whole K of memory. It had a chip, which provided full word processing facilities. It ran on an 8K ROM and did everything anyone could want. By then I knew ROM meant read-only memory, but I didn't believe I'd ever have anything interesting to write, so I still didn't expect to use the computer much. Anyway, to my delight, the machine worked first time. I could do so much with it. First, I could show it off to other people. Often my computer was the first my audience had ever seen, and a lot of brownie points to be had just by owning one. To be able to say I made it was a real bonus. None of that cut much ice at work, however. There, everyone had a computer, so I had to show a degree of proficiency with mine to be able to show myself at work at all. Not everyone had the same machine. Some had a NASCOM 1, other people had the same as me, and the richest had some sort of Apple, Tandy, or IBM thing. I never liked talking to them. I didn't understand a word they said, and it made me feel inferior. So I kept within my little group, and we talked happily in our UK 101 jargon. I once took my computer into work. It was the size and almost the shape of a laptop, but lighter in weight and colour. Even though it could do nothing compared to the simplest of portables today, it gave me a lot to do during the downtime between making TV programmes. Perhaps that's why I didn't get promoted. It was the machine on which I first typed out a programme called Cells and Serpents, one of the early Dungeons and Dragons games for the computer. It was very easy to adapt and great fun to play with. That was the essence of computing for me. The very simple fun of thinking up what to make it do, trying to make it do it, and then playing the game to see if it worked, and then fixing it because it didn't. Lovely. My affair with the UK 101 did not last very long. The BBC had great plans for the future. One day, standing outside a meeting room above Ealing Broadway Station, where BBC Enterprises once was, I got a glimpse of the first BBC Micro. I was very impressed. For a start, it was a British colour machine, not an American one without a U. It had lots of memory, and said New Brain on the box. I never saw it again. When the BBC Model A came out, it was made by Acorn, the Atom people. The black and white display of the Atom was no match for the splendid 16-colour New Brain I had seen. But as soon as the BBC branded computer was available, I joined the queue. As a member of BBC staff, I expected, hoped and even counted on being able to wangle a good deal on one of the first machines. No joy. We all had to pay the full whack. Never mind, at least we had one. This new machine was also multicolour capable. 
8 solid, 8 flashing. It had a 16K memory, built-in sound, and could be easily expanded. Rapidly, I found out that expansion was obligatory, if not technically, then certainly socially. There was no real need for more memory, if all I wanted to do was write a few letters or play some very simple teletext-type graphic games, but all of a sudden, magazines were published advertising all the new programs, 1M. Each of these needed lots of RAM for pretty pictures on the screen. The better the required picture, the bigger the memory had to be. So I bought some more chips, plugged them in, and called the box a Model B, which it wasn't. In those days, the only way to get round having to type in a program before the machine would do anything was either to buy it as a cassette tape or type in the data as text and save the code as a buzz on a normal audio recorder. This saving and loading on tape was a pain of the highest order. Although the BBC machine worked much more reliably than the UK 101 ever had, or the Sinclair ever could, it was still a long wait watching the loading banner before anything much would happen. Sometimes the program maker would give me something to look at while the rest of the data loaded, but the extra weight that required, before the program proper could, was very irritating. It was not exactly a robust system either. Just one glitch and the transfer stopped, and the machine asked for the tape to be rewound. How I yearned for a disk drive. A true Model B machine, bought from a shop, had a disk interface already partly installed. My machine hadn't. So my just getting the BBC B disc upgrade kit didn't do the job. It took some time before I could relax to the sound of tiny little clunks from a fully working disc drive, but the effort of reading manuals and singeing fingers with my soldering iron as I added yet more chips to the unpopulated parts of my upgradable motherboard, as it was then known, was well worth it. I still didn't have a lot of real intrinsic use for the electronic brain machine, but my organic original had started to do things that I'd always thought were far beyond it. In retrospect, this was the best part of computing for me. Not what I could do with a computer, but what I could do with the brain in my head after learning how to use a computer. For example, I found that with a bit of effort, I could solve the Rubik Cube. Having proved that I could concentrate for long periods on relatively dry computing subjects with the hope of something good at the end, I learned I could do the same thing in real life. For another, and more important thing, I passed my BBC exams. Termination was not yet for me. On top of the fun of computing, it also gave me a subject to talk about to people I didn't know, and it was something to do when we made nothing worth watching on telly. There was no need for me to bring a BBC computer into work. Soon almost every room at Telecentre had one sitting in a corner. These machines were not there to gather dust. They were workhorses, keeping records of edit sessions, generating clocks, even for putting subtitles onto CFAX broadcasts. Sometimes the CFAX screens themselves were generated with them. More than once I transmitted a What's On Next caption to a satellite-based TV system capable of using a BBC to generate a teletext graphic. Not a lot of people can say that. Few are interested, sorry for bothering you. By then, I was heavily into writing. Nothing intended for reading, just diary-type notes for fun. This sort of thing was not expected at the Beeb, and there were not many word processes available, so I wrote one. As a program, it was rubbish, but it worked. The addition of the ability to write words as well as programs helped me develop many aspects of my powers of deduction, reasoning, thought and inventiveness. In short, computers gave me more than just something to do. 
It gave me the ability and the reason to bother to do it. As my self-confidence grew, so did my abilities. The uncomplaining nature of my dumb assistant let me learn what I wanted at my own speed where and when I wanted to learn it. Perfection. The Acor computer was for a time taken up as the educational resource of choice by the government and supplied to every school in the country. By that time I had finally got bored with not being promoted at the Beeb. I left it and became a lecturer, teaching computing to special-needs students. It was the best job I'd ever had. So I'd learned computing. But not the lesson behind it. My laurels were bright and shiny, but the world was set to move on beyond even me. The acorn fell out of fashion, and the letters PC became owned by Microsoft, forcing me at almost the last moment to jump ship. Continually learning new things does keep the brain active, but just as I became utterly proficient in the new world, the next one thundered up, ready to push aside yet again. This time I'm ready. But I must admit to feeling rather tired.